So today we're wrapping up our brief uh, two-week sermon series on a short book from the Old Testament, the book of Esther. Hooray! <laughs> it's going to drag this out a lot, but that's, that would be really fun. <laughs> uh, is 10 chapters long, and uh, it's an essential story of our faith history, so much so that there is a beloved Jewish holiday that celebrates this story, which I'll come back to later. As we discussed last week, uh, this is a story about how faithful people are called to act in the face of what our United Methodist baptismal vows, which we just heard, refer to as evil, injustice, and oppression. When we see evil, injustice, and oppression in the world, how, how are we to respond? And when we are in positions of power and influence, what are we willing to risk in order to confront evil, injustice, and Oppression, those are, are some of the questions that the book of Esther raises. One of my personal heroes, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, offered a, a memorable kind of fun metaphor for this. He said, if you are in situations of injustice, uh, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. <laughs> Now I'm guessing that, that most of us here would stick up for the mouse, hoping all of us here would stick up for the mouse because all of us answer in the affirmative when we are um, asked that question in our baptismal vows, do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? But as with everything in the life of faith, knowing that we are uh, called to do something still requires the willingness to act, the willingness to actually do it. Well, in the biblical book that, that bears her name, Esther must choose how to respond in the face of a looming act of evil against God's people. Uh, now, let me just say here that there are multiple layers of this expertly told story. It is uh, one of the best, you could call it short stories in the Bible. If you've never read it, I would uh, commend it to you. We're only summarizing some of the highlights here, but for our purposes today, here's what we covered last week. So Esther is a Jewish woman whose family had been taken into exile uh, in Babylon several generations earlier. This was um, before Babylon was con conquered by the Persians. And she becomes queen of the kingdom of Persia although the king does not know her religious identity. She won what was essentially a beauty contest, having been chosen by King, and it is pronounced Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes. Ah, <laughs> uh, I'm just gonna call him King Xerxes. We're gonna read his name uh, in the Bible reading when I get to it, but I'm just gonna call him Xerxes for sake of ease. So Esther's adoptive father, a man named Mordecai, had encouraged her to compete to become queen. And according to the story, Mordecai is either a palace official or he is some kind of um, a prominent citizen because he's frequently around the palace. And in fact, it's uh, while he's at the palace gates one day that he overhears a plot to assassinate the king. 
The story tells us that he reports the plot and the plot is foiled. And this is a, a salient point that we'll come back to here in a minute. When the king elevates a man named Haman to be a senior official, kind of like his prime minister, the king issues a decree that everyone must bow down in Haman's presence in order that Mordecai refuses to obey. And Mordecai's disrespect infuriates Haman. Because Mordecai is Jewish, Haman bribes the king into issuing a decree to kill all the Jewish people in Persia. He casts lots to determine uh, when this order will be executed, and the lots land on a, a date that's actually 11 months in the future. So the rest of the story unfolds with this, this looming atrocity, in the shadow of this looming atrocity. Now, last week, we read the fourth chapter of Esther, and in that chapter, Mordecai uh, informs Esther of the king's decree and Haman's treachery, and he challenges her to intervene, to try to avert this disaster, warning her that when it is discovered that she herself is Jewish, the, the king's decree will apply to her as well. And he tells his uh, adopted daughter that, he, that she cannot keep silent in the face of such evil. So what Esther does is arranges for a banquet. We're going to read about that in a second. Uh, with just the king and Haman and her, those are the only invitees where she's presumably going to ask the king to save her people. But in the meantime, Mordecai uh, once again ignores the required courtesy to be offered to Haman. And once again, Haman is over the top infuriated. Not content with the king's decree to kill all of Mordecai's faith community, Haman as he's preparing to attend this banquet with Queen Esther, which we're gonna read about in a second, orders that an 80-foot high gallows be built in front of his house. I noticed that Meredith left that part out of the story. It's probably a good call. <laughs> I don't know what the sound for that would be. That would be weird. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Okay, so rather than, uh, rather than wait the 11 months until the king's general order will take care of Mordecai, he plans to ask the king on the next day to hang Mordecai 80 feet high, both to humiliate him publicly and to make a spectacle of his death. If he wasn't, if he wasn't so wicked and the subject wasn't so serious, Haman would be a comical villain. Well, that night, the king just happens not to be able to sleep, we're told. And so he has his clerks read from the, the royal annals and records to remind himself of any royal business that requires his attention. And his clerks just so happened to read about how Mordecai had saved the king from an assassination plot, and they just so happened to remind the king that nothing had yet been done to honor Mordecai. The next morning, Haman just happens to be the first uh, official that the king sees in the palace. He just so happens to be there to ask the king to order Mordecai's hanging on that 80-foot high gallows that he had built. When the king, ironically, some would say, providentially, we would say, asks Haman what would be the best way for the king to honor an especially worthy person. Now, at this point, we should say, whatever Esther ends up doing, uh, God who's not named in the book at all, certainly happens to be at work throughout this story in unseen but very palpable ways. Haman, not surprisingly, assumes that the king wants to honor him. 
his most important senior official, the one who has, has just had this promotion to prime minister. And so he tells the king, I've got a great idea. What we should do is for that, that man that you wanna honor, um, we should have him put on royal robes and not just robes, uh, any kind of royal robes, but robes that the king himself has worn and we should put a crown on his head and then we should put that man on one of the king's horses and then we should have one of the king's officials lead the horse through the city square proclaiming for everyone to hear, thus shall it be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor. And the king says, you know what Haman, I love it, that's perfect. Now I need you to go find my servant Mordecai who has done me a great service and put him on that horse and you lead him through the city square in just that way. <laughs> and Haman of course has no choice but to do just that. This, uh, this 15th century painting by Botticelli is called The Triumph of Mordecai being led by Haman. So we'll pick up the story from there. I'm gonna begin in the uh, 12th verse of the sixth chapter, and then we'll go through the sixth verse. 12th verse, sixth chapter, yeah, through six, chapter seven, verse six. So listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the author of Esther. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him, his advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, <clears throat> if Mordecai, before whom your downfall has begun, is of the Jewish people, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman off to the banquet that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to, to feast with Queen Esther on the second day, so this is quite a party, as they were drinking wine, the king again uh, said to Esther, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have won your favor, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me. That is my petition. And the lives of my people, that is my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have held my peace. But no enemy can compensate for this damage to the king. Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who has presumed to do this? Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So it's really important for us to just remember that it took uh, courage, in addition to cleverness and boldness, uh, for Esther to have advocated for her people in this way. It was risky for her to do what she's doing here. It's important for us to remember that she was in a precarious position when she hosted this banquet for, for Haman and the king. As of yet, uh, the king does not know she's Jewish. The king does not know her connection to Mordecai. And the king does not seem to be the type of person who likes surprises. As we talked about last week, the king has no problem deposing his queens. Vashti was 
was just summarily dismissed when she challenged the king's authority. In fact, although the text does not specifically say this, there are some rabbinic traditions that teach that the king had Vashti executed, not just banished. And not only that, but Esther had only become queen because of a a beauty contest. She had not been queen all that long by this point of her story. And we read last week that she had not even seen the king for a month before she invited him to this banquet. And not only that, she herself was subject to the decree that all Jews would be killed when the chosen date arrived. The book of Esther tells us that that Persian law prohibited royal decrees from being revoked once they had been issued, sealed with the king's ring, and disseminated. Which meant that, that Esther was asking for the impossible, at least under Persian law. So she was She was an outsider who was asking the two most powerful men in the kingdom for the impossible. Which raises the question, when we see evil, injustice, and oppression in the world, how are we to respond as God's faithful? More specifically, in the case of Esther, what are we willing to risk in order to confront evil, injustice, and oppression? I think most Christians uh, know about several festivals and holidays in the the Jewish tradition. Most of us know at least the basics of Passover, for example. I think most of us know about Hanukkah, uh, either in, we've learned about it in school or from friends or just kind of the culture in general. But many of us know, many of us know I think what Rosh Hashanah is and Yom Kippur is, even if we don't know the details of those holidays, we, we know them. But until I was in seminary, I had never heard of the Jewish holiday inspired by the story of Esther. If you have Jewish friends, uh, you may know about this holiday. I did not. It's called Purim, which comes from the Persian word for lots, because Haman had cast lots to determine the date on which his wicked plan would be implemented. This year, uh, Purim will be celebrated on March 6th and 7th, so it's, it's coming up soon. And it's an incredibly festive celebration. This is a picture from Israel, uh, a Purim parade. There are four spiritual practices on Purim. Um, One is the reading of the book of Esther, of course. Uh, One is the giving of monetary gifts to people in need. Uh, One is the sending of a gift of food to at least one friend, which I think is awesome. I feel like as Methodists, we should incorporate that somewhere in in our calendar. And then there's this great Purim feast, and it's a, it's a fun-filled day, so it's customary for, for children as well, well as any adults who choose to, to dress up in costume. As I said, there are parades. There are um, these special noisemakers <clears throat> that depict Haman leading Mordecai through the city square, and they, like, like, kind of like New Year's, which is awesome. A friend of mine gave this to me. And then there's a traditional food that's eaten on Purim. It's a, it's a three-cornered pastry with sweet fillings, and uh, they're called Haman's Ears. <laughs> and I won't tell you why. You can Google that later if you want. <laughs> but it's a, it's a very, it's, a, it's, a very, it's like Mardi Gras almost. It's kind of the mood that uh, conjures up for me. It's explained at the end of the book of Esther, and Purim has become uh, this annual, very fun celebration of God's salvation. It's a festival that honors the unseen ways in which God works in the world. And uh, 
it's a festival that celebrates the wisdom and the, the courage and the steadfastness of Esther with an assist from Mordecai at the expense of Haman. So we should probably uh, read and find out what the celebration is all about. So this is Esther chapter seven, verse seven, through chapter eight, verse two. Listen again, friends, for God's word. The king rose from the feast in wrath and went into the palace garden, but, but Haman stayed to beg his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that the king had determined to destroy him. When the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman had thrown himself on the couch where Esther was reclining, and the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the words left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, look, the very gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, stands at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, 80, 80 feet high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the anger of the king abated. On that day, King Xerxes gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. Then the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. So Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now there are a couple of more chapters left in the book at this point, uh, chapters that get a little lively. We don't have time today to, to talk through just how it is that Mordecai, in his new role as the king's right-hand man, overcomes the, the prohibition in Persian law that a king's order cannot be rescinded. Suffice it to say um, that those who had intended to destroy God's people end up being themselves destroyed. Uh, it gets very Old Testament at the end, is what I'm saying. And we read that the day that, that Haman thought would bring about the elimination of God's people is transformed uh, for all future generations into an annual celebration of God's Deliverance, deliverance that is made possible through the, the courage and steadfastness of two of God's people, which of course is so often how God chooses to work in the world, through God's people. So the obvious question for us is, what does this book mean for us? I mean, other than, other than being familiar with famous stories from our faith tradition, which in, it, in and of itself is a good thing, and other than becoming more familiar with the holidays and celebrations of our Jewish friends, which is a good thing, what should we take from the book of Esther? How can the story of Esther and Mordecai inspire us to grow in our faith? Well, as I've mentioned, for me, it really does come down to our baptismal vows, which is why it's perfect we baptized Wesley this morning. As 21st century American Christians living very blessed lives in whatever community we call home, we are people um, of power and influence. What's more, as faithful followers of Jesus, to whom it should be said, the book of Esther would have been very dear, we know that the life of faith uh, should both inform and shape how we look at the world. And of course, all of us are aware 
painfully aware, if we spend any time at all following the news of the world, that evil, injustice, and oppression present themselves in myriad ways in this and every age. I'm guessing that for each of us there are those issues about which we care most deeply, hopefully we care deeply enough that we're willing to act on those issues about which we care most deeply, about which we are most passionate. You know, it's not, it's not possible to do uh, everything we can about every instance of evil, injustice, and oppression in the world. And I think, and I'll speak for myself at least, it's easy to become overwhelmed by the world's great need. But the thing is, that does not give us an excuse to do nothing. <laughs> Each of us has those issues about which we care most deeply, deeply enough to act, and that action can, can show up in a variety of ways. We can advocate uh, for the causes that we're most passionate about, using our power and our influence for good. We can contribute to the causes that we're most passionate about after we tithe to the church, mind you. <laughs> we can volunteer with the institutions that we're most passionate about and put our faith into action because our faith calls us to speak up and speak out when the powerful target the weaker for their own gain. When people are exploited or abused or marginalized, when people are subjected to discrimination and bigotry because of who they are or where they're from. And while it's certainly true that we have differences of opinion among us about the, the details of politics and policy, that's true, uh, still we all know that as people commanded by Jesus to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves, this faith into which we've been baptized calls us to courage and steadfastness in the face of evil, injustice, and oppression. But as with everything in the life of faith, knowing what we're called to do still requires willingness to act. So for me, the great lesson of Esther is to be an inspiration to us in our own paths as followers of Jesus. And with Lent beginning on Wednesday, I, I think this may be a worthy aspect of our own discipleship journey to reflect upon. Having spent a few weeks now thinking about Esther and Mordecai, uh, I was reminded of something that Abraham Lincoln once said. It's a famous quote of his. You may have heard it. Um, he, too, was someone who was called to courage and steadfastness, someone who, who risked everything by using his power and influence for good to save the Union and to end slavery, ultimately giving his life for a greater cause. Lincoln once said, be sure to put your feet in the right place, then stand firm. May we do so. Amen.